In the digital reality, evolution over revolution prevails. The QA approaches and techniques that worked yesterday will fail you tomorrow. So free your mind. The automation cyborg has been sent back in time. TED speaker Jonathan Wright's mission is to help you save the future from bad software. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing great. This is Niall here. How's it? Yeah, good to, good to finally connect. Uh, how's things in California? How are you uh, finding remote working? Um, well, I think it's been, you know, a confirmation of an experience I've had for many years, which is the technology is in a place now where it's kind of seamless. And I think that one of the big... Uh, results of this pandemic is that business is learning that this stuff really works, you know, and when you, when you were the one working remotely in a company, you were like the vegetarian at the steakhouse, right? And uh, now I think a lot of people are thinking, you know, this, this really works a lot better than having to go into the office five days a week and sniff everyone else's behind you know, <laughs> all day. So I, I think, I think I'm having no, I mean, I did a year's worth of consulting last year without ever setting foot in the office where hmm. the offices of the company where I was consulting. Because, By the way, can you see me? I can't see. You just need to hit the um, share um, camera. Start, start video, bottom left. Oh, I, I, I don't want to scare you by letting you see me. No, no, no. Yeah, I can see you now. Um, yeah, so a year full of doing a full year of uh, just consulting. Was your head office remote or not based near California? Well, this was a company in Portland, Oregon uh, called Circle Media. Okay. And their head of engineering is a guy I worked with at Symantec for a while. So, so I was hired to sort of rebuild the QA effort there because uh, they were in that like horrible phase boundary between being a startup to suddenly being successful. And then, you know, none of the, none of the startup QA processes scale, right? And everyone's kind of doing their own thing and it's all very loosey-goosey and suddenly you need to have like total analytical transparency into product quality on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, guys you hired straight out of college have no knowledge of how to do that so that's That's really interesting in the sense of you know just standard q you're raising a really interesting point around standard qa practices and then you know and the scalability of those you know i think you start off with building a small team and then that the methodologies and approaches that you use for that aren't exactly going to work maybe a, a, a more um you know scalable model so how, how do you overcome that well let me tell you a little bit about myself and my career mm. um, i have a, a master's degree in ancient near eastern literature and languages from the oriental institute of the university of chicago which of course led directly to a career in software development and uh, i left grad school because i didn't want to be an academic and bounced around for a bit And this is in the mid-80s, so this is, you know, the Cretaceous. And I taught myself software, 
And I got a gig uh, being uh, the QA lead for a, soft, for a small software company. And um, I had to figure it all out by myself. I mean, I had no training of any kind. Um, and I, that's where I kind of had to figure a lot of this out. And then I went to work for Symantec in Los Angeles as the director of QA for their entire enterprise software division. So corporate Norton antivirus, firewall, email filtering, you know, suddenly I was running a group of 100 people doing QA for eight simultaneous enterprise software projects. And that's where you really have to up your game because you really have to, because QA, I, I think all software processes in a smaller company are very artisanal, right? You find the one guy who knows what they're really doing and you trust them with all the important stuff. Meanwhile, no one else is learning from that person, right? So when I, worked, when I went to work for Symantec, I had to realize I have to create a whole department that functions like one really brilliant software tester. So how do I do that? And what does that mean? And it also made me confront what was for me the fundamental issue that, you know, QA is not really a problem of quality. It's a problem of knowledge because QA doesn't actually assure the quality of anything. That's up to product management and engineering. And I mean, everyone who's worked in QA knows you don't test quality into anything. And so I had this insight that the real function of quality assurance was to provide real-time knowledge of, of the state of product quality at any point in its development. In other words, it's not something that just emerges at the end. So I had to kind of totally rethink how I did my job and what the purpose of my job actually was. That my job was to run the group so that it could create real-time quality metrics to serve rational risk-taking um, at the upper management level. And when I realized that, all the kind of like operatic aspects of QA disappeared like that, you know, go, no, go ship, no ship meeting suddenly became totally cut and dry because we had all the metrics in place from the beginning of the project. We, we were not using bug metrics as quality metrics. Uh, we were using test coverage as our fundamental quality metric. And, you know, people were kind of disappointed that suddenly these ship, no ship meetings were so cut and dry. It was like, okay, if we ship now, here are the risks we're taking. Here are the issues. If we wait two weeks, this is how much better we'll be, and here's how much it will cost. You know, it became just a very dry discussion. That's a long-winded answer to a simple question, but, I mean, you, you, you have to really have a clear understanding of what QA really is before you can figure out what processes need to be in place to make it successful. And most people, I find, have an incomplete understanding of what the real purpose of QA is. And for that reason, they may put all these wonderful processes in place, but they're based on a false assumption of what QA actually does. No, I think that's a great answer. And, you know, I think you said a couple of things there. You took, you know, about the fact that it's about knowledge. Um, you know, and coming out of university, with a language kind of um, degree, um, you know, part of that gives you foundational skills. And, you know, did you find that applying some of what you did 
in university actually helped with understanding maybe the language behind QA? Without question, because when I was in, uh, you know, because my entire education is what would be considered, you know, useless humanities, as my uncles never tired of pointing out to me. Because, uh, you know, I spent my youth hearing, well, how are you going to make a living? You know, because you know, I wasn't like installing TV antennas and stuff like that. And, um, but I found that my education was really crucial in my success in tech for a very simple reason, that in the humanities, you're always dealing with situations of irreducible complexity, right? There's no one interpretation of a novel, right? There's no one translation of an ancient manuscript, right? You're always having to choose and figure out what's, what works, what's best. And I found that that made me very comfortable with problems of software development because there are, those are problems of hyper-complexity, of, of, of irreducible complexity. And you're having to make choices consciously of this over that and that, not this. And I found one of the, and, and, make, and I think, you know, I've worked all over the world and I think this is something very typical of American culture in particular. We're very uncomfortable with irreducible complexity. We're always trying to wish it away. And when I first started working in software, I saw this like over and over again. And a really good example of this is the problem of load and performance testing. There are so many variables involved there. You can't just optimize for one, right? I mean, it's a multivariable optimization problem. Plus, I've also found that software development, when I was early in my career, was very uncomfortable with dealing with what are called emergent properties of software systems. In other words, properties that, are invisible until the entire system is hooked up and working. In other words, like you can't drill down and see the problem in this component or that component or this environment or that environment. The entire, because I was working with enterprise software, right? Not desktop software. And one of the big first problems I had to tackle at Symantec was load and performance testing, which they were not doing even though they were selling a product that was rolled out to 50,000 seats at Ford, right? And, and what I encountered there was people couldn't even, they didn't even know how to think about the problem because it was irreducibly complex. You couldn't reduce it to this factor or this data point or like I'd, I'd say, well, you know, it has to, it has to support 20,000 simultaneous users on the network. And I'm like, okay, over what period of time, you know, at what cost in networking, um, you know, it's, it's, they couldn't wrap their head. In fact, I wound up writing the performance and load requirements for the product because product management was completely at sea. So, and I think particularly now that we're in cloud computing and particularly artificial intelligence, the ambiguities and the complexities are just like, they're beyond infinite. And I think that's catching a lot of people by surprise because they can't just wish it away. You know, they can't just automatically reduce it to one very simplistic thing that everyone can wrap their heads around. So, but you're absolutely right. My education in humanities was crucial 
in my ability to deal with these problems because like I said, you know, interpreting Hamlet, you know, there's, there's not one interpretation of Hamlet, is there? Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really good point. It's, um, you know, a, a good friend of mine, I always use the word phrase, you know, English is wonderful for poetry, but not for writing requirements because of the levels of an ambiguous, how ambiguous the language is and multiple meanings for, 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 for should, could, you know, just how we speak. Um, whereas, you know, other languages are formed more structural, like I'm not going to, I'm going to say Klingon is kind of, you know, very math space. Right. And, you know, when you look at things like, uh, so I was, I was reading uh, a book on, from Tom Gilb on Planguage, which, um, you know, was, uh, if you've heard of Planguage, it was a, a language which is definitely uh, defined for requirements engineering purposes without ambiguously built into that language. And, you know, part of what your kind of your, your academic side of things led to your ability to deal with lots of multiple complexity embedded within that language to then understand kind of how important certain things are compared to others, like the, you know, the semantic problem of scale, you know, looking at things like non-functional requirements and looking at the different dimensions of that and asking it from multiple questions to clarify those ambiguity of requirements. You know, you, you mentioned about test coverage and, you know, do, how do you do, go about doing that to give you that kind of confidence about ship, no ship? Sure. Well, let me first talk very briefly about requirements language because on the one level, you know, you certainly can expect that the people who write the requirements are using a level of precision appropriate to their role, right? I mean, you cannot expect a product manager to define every little thing about the product requirement. That's actually not their job. And so what I did was I would take the product requirements and translate them into release criteria corresponding to each requirement. And what I had to train my team to do is release criteria must be empirical descriptions of result states. In other words, if this is working correctly, what would you see? Okay. So you get a requirement like must be easy to install. Now that's a terrible requirement, right? Because it can mean nothing and everything. And I would sit with a product manager and flesh that out a little bit, right? Like what, is e what, what does easy mean here? And then I would turn that into something like, you know, it only needs one resource to affect the installation. Uh, you, if you have to reboot at all, you only have to reboot once, and it can't take more than 10 minutes. You know, those are results. And, and those could be totally different values for each of those parameters, right? But at some point, you have to get down to empirical states that can be observed, Right. So getting to test coverage, this is where I had another insight when I was at Symantec. Um, there's, I came up with a notion that I call a test context. Okay? And what I defined a test context as was a, an aspect or feature or capability of the system that could vary independently of others. And that sounds abstract, but I mean, there are some really obvious examples of this, like 
different OSs, right? I mean, if you're writing an app that's going to run on iOS and Chrome, those are clearly different test contexts, right? Because they can vary independently of one another. Foreign languages are another super obvious example because Symantec was like available in every language, right? And then things like product modalities, right? So say you're testing a web server for performance. Obviously, caching on and caching off are two very different test contexts, right? Because the product's going to behave totally differently in each of those. And there are many more subtle examples of this, like what, what user mode are you in? Are you logged in as an administrator? Are you logged in as an end user? And people habitually don't think in these terms. They think in terms of like this feature or that feature. So what I learned how to do was decompose the capability envelope of the product into its test contexts, okay? And then I would rank within each of those contexts the different variables, like, you know, and then you have to come to a decision of how much of the test bed am I actually going to run for each of these. And that leads you down some interesting paths because I did a lot of localization testing. And people would think about that as, well, we need to test in this language, that language, this language, which you can't do when you're supporting 20 languages. So what I figured out was the actual test context there was uh, character set type. And there were three, uh, single byte Western ASCII, single byte Eastern ASCII, and multibyte. And then once you had that categorization, you would choose, okay, within each of those, you know, because Western single byte is basically any Western European language, right? Eastern, Eastern single byte is Arabic, Hebrew, you know, and multibyte is like any East Asian language, right? And so once you had that categorization, you could make a rational decision of within each of these silos, which, which are the top ones that I need to test, right? I mean, obviously, German, French, Spanish, you know, obviously, Japanese and Korean, right? But that, and then you, you could go down that ranking and say, so this one down here, I'm probably only going to test 20%, right? And then once you do that, then you must have traceability of tests back to requirements through contexts so that you can say, I mean, bug metrics are interesting, but to me, bug metrics are not quality metrics. They're effort metrics because the number of bugs is going to increase the longer you've tested and the more people you have doing the testing. And so what you have to have in addition to a test coverage definition is you must have hard traceability from product requirements to a group of tests that validate it. And then your quality metric is for each requirement, what percentage of tests have been run, what percentage of tests have passed, what percentage have failed, and what percentage are blocked. In other words, we can't run them at all, given our equipping limitations and environment limitations. So, but I found that test coverage and traceability, if you don't have those in place, you do not have a truly analytical QA effort. And using bug metrics as release metrics, I think, is the ultimate delusion. But, it's, but once again, it's, it's wishing complexity away, right? 
you just look in the defect tracking database, pull out a number and say, is it high or low? How many open category A bugs? How many open category B bugs? Which to me is like bullshit. Because if, if that bug count only represents 20% test coverage, and you don't know you've only achieved 20% test coverage, they're utterly meaningless, right? I mean, you're, you're flying blind. It's like a blind person who thinks they can see. They, they don't know that they're blind. So, you know, but institutionalizing this was the real task, of course, not just having these ideas and thoughts, but actually making people do it. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. It's like you're combining kind of a, a modern day risk-based testing approach with quality metrics that are in the context of what's important to the to the organization so you know what i liked about that traceability matrix that you're talking about it's directly linked with a proportion of what maybe your customer base based on the language um so i, I remember finding a really interesting defect with an installer um so i was living in new zealand and um i was using load runner which is a back in those days with a HP yeah, I'm, I'm product. very familiar with Loadrunner, yeah. And so I, I kept on installing it on, on my PC, um, and it was fine. And um, then I went to deploy it onto the server, and it just would not install. And I kept on thinking to myself, what is it? It's the same, same OS, it's the same, all these different test context kind of variables. Um, and the MSI installer, the only difference was the language, was the language of English Right. Uh, U.S. versus English um, New Zealand. So English New Zealand and English, um, there was uh, for G, uh, another variation of it. Those MSIs weren't installing the pre, the necessary prerequisites. They weren't launching, um, and they were in silent mode. So you, I didn't know that they needed .NET or whatever else it was trying to install. Right, right. And you, that's exactly what you're talking about. Directly linked. If you're saying. I'm looking at my customer base and maybe only because I was working with IBM at the time, you know, it was maybe only 2% of our customer base are based in New Zealand. You know, that's a much lower priority than the U S and the Ch China, Japan, all the major locations of where your customer base is. But if HP had thought about that and done it in your kind of metrics, they would have had a clear vision of where the risk laid uh, potentially could be. And, you know, how complete localization was for ready to ship. And I guess that's also Correct. version specific. Right. And, and the thing that I um, did was, you know, one of the dysfunctions of software development is from the perspective of the CXO level, the engineering team is always failing them. And that perception is created by the fact that they're constantly surprised at the very end or worse after release of the state of the product, right? So if you're the CTO or the CEO, what you're hearing from a lot of software development projects is everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. And then in the last month before ship, everything blows up in their faces. Or even worse, everything's fine, we're ready to go, we ship, and then the product blows up on contact with actual customers. And what happens is the CXO level stops trusting the engineering group completely. 
because they feel they've been hung out to dry and humiliated in public and constantly being lied to. So what I learned to do was basically go into these meetings and say, um, and, and I boil down all these complicated metrics into a very simple thing, because when you talk to CEOs, you can't be complicated, right? And I basically did like a feature ranking, and I gave each one a rating of one, two, or three. Whereas one, ready to go, extremely low risk of serious problems in the field. Two, almost ready to go, medium risk of serious problems in the field, right? Three, hell no, right? And everyone told me, don't present that to the CEO. He's going to wig out. And in fact, it was the opposite. He was like, thank you. He said, how much more time do you need to get everything to at least a two? And I got an extra two months for the whole project because I was honest. But I could present it analytically where he could calculate risk in a rational way. And the head of engineering was like, Niall, I need to take you to, you know, because they were desperate for more time because they knew it was not ready to go, but they were terrified to say, you know, so it's like, we don't have to lie if we have the right metrics for the work that we're doing. We just say, hey, here's the deal. Here's the risk you're taking if you ship now. If that's acceptable to you, we can ship. Here's my recommendation as the director of QA. And to follow my recommendation, here's the extra time the project will need. And, you know, because I'm not, you know, one of the roles of being a, a, one of the paradoxes of being a QA leader is that it's very schizophrenic. There's a point in the project where you have to be a hard ass about quality, right? But then there's a point after which your job is to get the product out the door. So you can't be uh, a stickler, you know, we're going to add two months to the schedule to fix these little problems because it's just not worth it. And that can be very confusing to the QA team because, you know, for months and months, they've seen me be this total hard ass. And then all of a sudden I have to be the one to tell them, look, forget about these issues because they're, they're known, they're known quantities. Everyone knows about them. Everyone knows we're shipping with these issues and there's no point in taking the extra time and money to fix them. And then they're kind of disoriented because they're like, but, 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 you know, you see, I, I also, that's really fascinating in, in, in a lot of different ways, because one of the things that you're talking about seems to be this idea of product, engi- product engineering, right? In the sense of, we understand pr- product is product teams, so product uh, man- managers, um, sorry, product managers and product owners are not going to know all the answers. And we know engineering um, need to at least know some of the answers as we go through that process. But what you're doing is you're able to kind of, from day one, really be able to push quality. It's not that you don't know what the final outcome is until a week before shipping. I'm guessing all the way through the life cycle of that product, you have a gauge, a measurable gauge of quality throughout the full three months, six months. You know, it's not something that's done because someone at the end saying, you know, how much time do you need? You're literally able to kind of gauge quality from, from day one. Right. And, and one of the metrics that I devised, which I didn't really need, but project management did. And I came up with a metric that I called time to quality. 
And this only works if you have a well-defined test bed and traceability to requirements, just assuming all of that, right? Whereas I would report out, um, and even with all this agile stuff, you still at least conceptually have to be defining a test pass, right? I mean, at some point you must have exercised 100% of the test bed, right? And you have results from that. Even if that pass is divided up into, you know, 5 million you know, sprints. And what I would report out on regularly was um, how quickly is quality being achieved. In other words, for each test pass, what percentage of tests passed on their first run? What percentage of tests required two passes before they passed? What percentage of tests required three or more, right? And that's a very important a trend metric because if you've completed your first test pass and only, and let's say 80% of your tests finally passed, but only 20% of them passed on the first run, that's actually a code quality metric right there. And I like to call that a tripwire metric because you can use that to say if, 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 if after you're, you're done testing the first architectural release, the first version of the product under test, and only 20% of the tests passed on the first try, guess what? You're, you're off schedule, right? I mean, you need to intervene now. And this is before anyone else knows the project's going off the rails, right? Because people tend to wait until the train is hanging off the bridge to say, you know, we need to intervene and do something. Mm. And I found that project management really loved that metric because we could take corrective action very early without a lot of drama and fuss and political exposure. But that's, that's the beauty of having the kind of system in place that I'm describing is that you can then come up with these kind of uh, higher level kind of meta metrics because people don't think in terms of like how quickly is quality being achieved. They think in terms of when will QA be done testing, right? Mm. And, and, and I found that that time to quality metric, particularly in very large, um, long schedule projects, because I was routinely working with projects that were 18 months long, right? And upper management expected you to hit a two-week release window that you committed to at the beginning. Right, which is very dysfunctional, but it's the reality. And so one of the things I realized, okay, given this reality, we have to know as early as possible when things are going wrong. Right? We you know, we we can't wait till the house is on fire. <laughs> and we're all trapped in the attic. Right. <laughs> we have to say, you know, I'm smelling some smoke from the kitchen. Maybe someone should go look. But I found, like, once I realized all this stuff, QA became much less dramatic, much less gladiatorial, you know. And, uh, by the way, I don't know if you've looked at my LinkedIn profile, but I have a series of essays on these subjects, articles, that go into great detail on all this, which may or may not be interesting to you. But what I found is that if you just fundamentally orient yourself that QA, 
that the problem of QA is a problem of knowledge, not a problem of quality. Because the product is in a certain state of quality at every point, even if it's horrible quality. But it's QA's job to know that at every point in the development process. And bug metrics to me are important, but they're very secondary. Because like I said, those are, those are labor metrics and effort metrics, right? Every, every bug is a unit of, of labor cost against engineering. But it's not a fundamental quality metric by any means. So there's a couple of things that I'm really interested in picking your brain on here. So I, I love everything you've just said. It is literally the most refreshing QA talk I've actually heard probably this decade, which actually I'm going to say this decade and last decade. That's how long. Because um, there's a couple of things that I, I just love about this. And, you know, the first one is this ability to understand quality at any particular time. And, you know, your example there to me is, what I've seen every single time I've ever been involved with a project, you know, 20% of testing's done. Therefore the view is that's, you know, they've got 80% left, not that the house is on fire because actually 80% failed on that first pass. And I know you probably remember the, the test director days quite well as well, but one of the things with test director, what was always missing from a metrics perspective was this idea of a counter to tell you how many times you've, you've done it you've rerun that test because you're right if you've re you're rerunning a test time to quality you're rerunning that same test 15 times and then you've got to think you know how long is the test script if it's 100 steps it's a complex step you know and you get into step 22 every time and it's breaking you know the concept is you know it's blocked or it's in progress there's not this kind of you know when you start planning to for that six month 12 month release cycle everyone's got their best intentions, right? It's best intentions. Right. If everything goes perfectly, we'll do it. But nobody has the guts two weeks in to say, actually, there's a problem. And, you know, we're going to have to potentially look at what, what that might mean as far as resources, additional resources that can help, you know, remove that problem. And, you know, part of that challenge of just, you know, negotiating with the business about, you know, it's not ready. And I've got a great example, a friend of mine, Chris Ambler, who used to be the head of EA Games. He went in, he got, when he got fired from EA Games, he went to, he was supposed to release a game, which was called SimCity, which I'm sure you've heard of. And I used to work, I used to work right next to their headquarters in uh, Los Angeles. So I'm very, very, you're very familiar with it. So Chris went into his boss and said, do not ship this product, right? He didn't have your metrics. He literally just said, we've done 13,000 hours of testing. We've raised, and I remember him telling me this story, we've raised 20,000 bugs. Uh, it's not ready to ship. So his boss, he'd already committed to a hard day. It was a couple of weeks left and they just said, it's going live. And he turned around to him and said, look, you do realize that those 13,000 hours, when we launch this game within the first 12 hours, there's going to be more hours of testing in production than there is on the entire testing effort, what we've done. And he says, if you ship it, it's going to break. Obviously it shipped, it broke, he got sacked. And, you know, part of that challenge was, I don't think he had the metrics of how far away were they before Correct. it could have been released. Right. Because you have to understand how CEOs think, mm -hmm. right? 
I mean, if they've, if they've got a huge financial loss they're facing if they don't ship on time, and you just say, sorry, it's not ready, and that's all you know how to say, they're not going to listen to you. Whereas if you could go in and say, okay, here's where we are, here's the risk involved, and here's my recommendation on how much more time we need. And the other thing is you have to train them that this isn't a testing problem. This is a code quality problem, obviously. And what I like about the time to quality metric is that what you're really identifying when you have tests that are failing again and again and again, even though they're patching and patching and fixing and fixing, what you're identifying there is code that's been really badly designed and written. And that's the problem. And it allows you to go in private to the head of engineering and say, these are areas of the code that are consistently failing, so they need to be rewritten. And that turns out to be a very no-drama discussion. You don't want to be bringing that out in a st status meeting, you know, because you know, engineers are very thin-skinned, right? But when you can go to say, okay, this clearly shows that this piece of code, this module, for whatever reason, I don't care, isn't working and it needs to be redesigned and recoded. And why don't we just start doing that now? You know, no drama, no fuss. It's, it's early enough on in the project that, you know, you don't have to say, oh, crap, you know, we're going to be late. And if you can, the whole point, as you said, you know, project engineering, the whole point is to front load the problems and the risk, right? The whole point is to discover everything that's really wrong as early as possible so that it can be fixed. And people understand that about bugs themselves, right? The sooner you find a bug, the cheaper it is to fix. But people don't understand that about the code itself. You know, the earlier you can find out, like one of the crazy things about Symantec, the enterprise division, was here's a product, once again, that's rolled out to 50,000 seats at major companies, right? Which means that the most important component of the product was installation. And guess what was the buggiest part of the whole product? And there was only one engineer who knew how to work on the code. And I remember saying to the head of engineering, well, did, you, did it occur to you that's a cause and effect thing? <laughs> I mean, if you give this massively complicated installation program as a responsibility to one engineer, what are the chances they're going to make all the correct decisions? But the thing about if you, if you look at, at whether quality is being achieved over time or not, people don't pay any attention to that. But it's so crucial for understanding where is the code weak? Where, where is the code just kind of like very jittery? And let's just talk about that adult to adult, fix it, move on. You know? But if you're finding that out in the last month before ship, you know, everyone's going to freak out. So QA is a problem of knowledge. It is not a problem of quality. That's my mantra. Yeah. And um, so, I, again, I, I love this chat. And so there's, there's a couple of things there. You know, I remember chatting to Alan Page, who did wrote the book on how Microsoft tests. And he talked about 
how when they were doing the Windows XP Vista, we know what the stories are for, for the operating systems. You know, they'd run it on thousands and thousands of hours with the, you know, different hardware, different, you know, configuration, because that was the problem, getting the software installed, right? Um, and, you know, partly what you're, you're, you're potentially raising here is two things. One, you know, is a resort, you know, what is the, the correct allocation of a problem to a, is it, does it need a team? Is it a single person job? And, you know, part of it is that we do work in, as engineers in silos and, you know, I, the idea which you just re- mentioned as well around, you know, if there's a, a fundamental problem with a, per, per, uh, you know, let's call it a code smell for a second, but if you're using code coverage tools, you probably could understand, you know, how complex that is, psychometric complexity. I can't remember how to pronounce it correctly, but, you know, part of it is you can start understanding if this bit of code is actually well engineered or not. But, you know, people used to, you know, I remember someone saying to me over and over again about, you know, if you get some builders in to do your driveway and they completely mess it up, do you invite the, the same builders to come back and fix the problem? Or do you get somebody else to look at it? And, you know, this is a kind of a question of, you know, when does it become an art, you know, an architectural challenge where you're kind of saying, you know, from an enterprise architecture perspective, is this, you know, piece of code, piece of functionality, is it too complex? Have we over, have we underestimated the complexity behind it? And is it, does it need a team? Does it need a solution architect involved to understand why it's so complex and why there's so, so many issues with it? Um, and so, you know, part of what you're doing is you kind of you're, you're identifying those edge cases of potential failure before they get hidden under masks of releases, where everyone believes that you know it's blocked, you can't test it, you can't get to integration testing, you can't system test it because you're playing catch up. You know, how do you find you know that kind of conversation goes with? understanding if a job is a bit bigger than a single person or, you know, if that person, it, or that it's just too complex. Well, I, I'm, I'm a great believer in um, role definition. And um, I've succeeded pretty well in my career because I've understood the boundaries between what I do and what engineering does and what product does, even though I do feel a responsibility to contribute to their success. So, I mean, obviously, I have ideas about why a piece of code is constantly failing. But I find that one of the success factors in being a QA lead is social. You know, one of my main goals when I come into a new, you know, context is to build trust with the head of engineering. And I remember when I got to Symantec, the head of engineering for enterprise was kind of on the surface, uh, like a classic driver dominant helmet headed my way or the highway. You think, you know what this is about, but let me tell you what it's really, you know, that, that thing. And, um, and I realized that being a QA lead is very much a, a question of fear management, particularly with respect to engineering. Because they look at you and you think you're going to humiliate me, you're going to find all my mistakes, you're going to. And, uh, and I was getting a little of that pushback from him, even though I knew he was actually a really great guy. I mean, he was playing a role, you know, as we all are 
at work. And so I just went into his office one day because we'd been having a, some static between us over some stuff. And, and I said, Robert, how would you define my job here? And he said, well, it's to ensure product quality. I said, no, not at all. I said, my job is to make you a star. That's my job. Because none of this is going to work unless you're happy. And I said, look, if, if I have issues with your team's work, I'm going to come to you in private. And we're going to hash it out. And we're going to come up with a solution that we're going to agree on. And we're going to publicly message the same thing. We're not going to disagree. I'm not going to ambush you in status meetings or staff meetings or I'm not going to tell everyone but you, you know, that your stuff is awful. You know, I'm going to just come to you and we'll, and we'll work it out. And I said, and I expect you to feel free to do that with me, that if you think QA is not doing what you want, come to me. I'll close the door and we'll have – but, like, if that is not in play, I mean, that's something that's not often talked about. But you can have all the process in the world and all the tools in the world. And that changed everything. I mean, that conversation – because, you know, I'll tell you something. It does not hurt to have the VP of engineering having your back. Right? Because the stuff I was doing was even more alien then than it is now. And that's that kind of managing up, isn't it? Which is always a skill which everyone kind of misses. Is that actually, you know, I, I you know, I, I love engineering practices. You know, I, I started kind of as an engineer and I found it quite hard to, to kind of adopt uh, this kind of agile methodologies to, to, to work uh, at scale. And um, Jonathan, I have to interrupt you because I have to move into another room right now. Okay, no problems. You, you, you get to watch and navigate my, my house here. Oh, you can see how good your Wi-Fi is between rooms. Oh, it's very good. Come on, this is California. Yeah, that's. I, I must admit, I am uh, a little bit jealous where our infrastructure quite isn't the same. Um, but last time, actually, last time I was in uh, Portland, um, I so I was working for Hitachi, and I was out there, uh, and I was catching up with my friend Ray Arell, who's based at uh, Hillsborough in, in Portland. Um, well, I, Intel. I went to college in Portland, so I, I know the place very well. And yeah, and so Ray, you, I'm sure you probably heard of Ray Arell, but he talks, he does the Agile Alliance, which is um, oh. that kind of direction. And, um, you know, Intel reminds me very much of semantic. You know, I remember growing up as a child loving, you know, ed- anything Peter Norton put out, right? Things like Ghost was kind of my favorite thing in the world. I used oh, Ghost it. was brilliant. Yeah. And the multicast server was just, you know, game changing. You know, we, when I was when I started as an engineer at Siemens, that's what we used to provision images on machines when we needed to test different versions of iOS. You know, it was you know game changing tech, but it, it kind of showed how robust that kind of engineered product was. Right? You know, the the tools that came out of Semantic were I'm not using word military grade, but they were at a, a, a grade where they were critical infrastructure kind of level. Oh, yes, very much so, yes. And, um, but I found that, you know, the, the job of, because uh, at Symantec, I was at the director level, 
So I was pretty high up. And, you know, getting buy-in is so important for as a QA leadership skill because no one wants us to actually do our job the way it needs to be done, right? They just want us to take the blame. And, um, I mean, whether they think that consciously or not, in terms of the institute, like the example of your friend at EA, right? You know, he told the truth and got fired. So um, I think that, uh, you know, because one of my favorite stories is I worked for a bit at the statistical software maker SPSS. And I remember right after I got there, I was the QA director, one of the engineering managers for one of their products, you know, came into my office and said, well, you know, uh, engineering is going to be six weeks late. And, and I appreciated that candor because often engineers will hide that, right? So I thought, okay, great. I said, uh, you realize you're going to have to tell the project manager that the whole project is now six weeks late. And I'll never forget, he looked at me like astonished and said, so you're saying QA is going to be late? <laughs> and I said, look, if you're six weeks late, that means we're six weeks late. I said, my schedule is not infinitely compressible. You know, I can't just lop six weeks off the QA effort and deliver what I'm expected to deliver. But I'll just never forget. He comes in and tells me he's going to be six weeks late. And when I say, well, then the project is six weeks late, he goes, oh, so you're going to be late. I'm like, <laughs> you know, so, so negotiating that buy-in. And uh, I think that one of the, things that I think is kind of dysfunctional now in the software industry in terms of how it thinks about QA. Even though I think one of the things that I find very gratifying is that when I started in QA, it was completely unprofessionalized. And I think particularly in the last five, six years, there's been this incredible growth of QA people professionalizing themselves and you know, having forums and podcasts and really kind of teaching each other how to do things, which was not the case when I started. But on the other hand, I think there's a tendency in the industry to reduce QA to two things. Um, on the one hand, process, and on the other hand, tools. And that leaves a gaping black hole of, yeah, that's great, but how do you actually do QA? Right. When when I when I look at, you know, when I've had to hire QA engineers to do automation, you know, people are just focusing on, do you know this tool or that tool or this scripting language or that scripting language? And a lot of these guys wash out when they interview with me because they say, OK, that's all well and good. And, and, and I believe you when you say, you know, all these tools and languages and I think that's great. Walk me through how you design an effective test. And then they look at you like cattle staring at a new gate, right? Because their expertise has been defined in knowing how to automate X, right? But they have no idea how to design X in the first place. And that's why automation, people throw so much money at it, and it's often ineffective. But, but that's kind of my, my, if there's a bee in my bonnet these days, it's that QA is not just process on the one hand and tools on the other. You have to have a fundamental expertise, which gets me back to role definition, which is 
to me, what makes something a role is not a title or where you are in the org chart. It's a responsibility that you or your team has that cannot be delegated. You, you can't give it to someone else. And so to answer your, your question about how do you deal with a situation where like the code is obviously failing, you know, my default mode is to say, the head of engineering, this is his role. He cannot delegate this to me or anybody else. Within that, I'm happy to offer any insight I have on what's going on and why it's going on and work with engineering. When I got to Symantec and they couldn't come up with requirements for load and testing, you know, the, the, the head of the project turned to me and said, well, can you write the requirements? And I said, well, yes, but I can't take responsibility for them because requirements, product requirements are defining a market opportunity, not a technical implementation. So you're asking me as the head of QA to take on a marketing role, which I cannot do. I said, I will write some requirements, but they can't be the requirements. Do, do you see what I mean? Because I, I find that having a clear understanding of the role definition as the thing you can't delegate, right? I can't ask, like, I make a strong distinction between participation and responsibility. Because sometimes you need to ask engineering to help you do testing, right? But that's participation. Responsibility for the quality of testing is still mine. I mean, I, I cannot delegate that to engineering. I can't delegate that to product because, you know, anyone can find a bug. As I like to tell my Q8 teams, you know, customers find bugs for free. Why should I pay you for the privilege, right? But I find that role definition creates that structure of accountability, but also of mutual support that helps you negotiate those difficult discussions. Whereas in a lot of organizations, there's no real role definition. Like everyone, like everyone's going to jump in and do stuff. And you're like, well, great, <laughs> but who's responsible for it? Right? And I find that, 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 that the clarity that role definition gives allows you to have it, it paradoxically allows you to offer support outside of your role because everyone understands this is not your role, right? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And what I really like about what you were saying about processes and tools, say, you know, I, I've, I kind of, um, you know, probably done 20 years of automation. That's kind of where I've been. And, you know, the focus has always been on tools, right? And, you know, I've, I found it hard to actually ever justify automation as a success because, you know, I don't think replacing, you know, manual testers with automation is going to solve anything. Right. Um, and I think, you know, there is this tendency to automate stuff, not really understanding it and understanding what, why you're doing it in the first place. And so I think the focus is a lot. And I, I agree with you of the, the new groups that are coming through. It's more around, you know, learn Python, you know, learn, you know, this, this particular type of framework. And there's a lot of problem solving spent understanding and interpreting those languages and those tools, which are infinitely complex in their own right, that when it comes to actually test design, it's a tertiary activity. And what's, you know, the primary one is whether they can automate the stack, which 
isn't the right reasons for it. And I think at the same time, process on the others is also the same, is that people are very much, I want to do Spotify Agile, or I want to take this new kind of, you know, approach to doing something and i i want to try it because it's new and exciting like the tools are new and exciting that actually when he talks about getting stuck in and understanding the context and the domain and becoming a, a knowledge uh, worker in kind of what you're talking about i think a lot of that is lost because you know there's, there's this focus on playing you know in, in one of these roles um and not focusing on quality um, and, and the reason why I, I kind of come into this kind of conversation is, you know, I love the idea of actually being calm and, uh, and cool and understanding where, where we are with quality. You know, that would be my dream, right, to get to where you are. Now, I've only seen this done once, and it was a, a Dutch um, company. And they, I remember coming into the office and speaking to the, the head of... Um, of engineering at the time and I said oh where, where are the guys at the front and they said oh they've all got the you know they're not feeling very well and someone's come in the office and now we've got we've lost six members of staff and I was like okay so what what we're going to do about the plot you know the project he said oh no it's fine you know that you know it, it's not a problem and I was like yeah but isn't what's his name working on this and you know wasn't right, he building right. the automation framework and that he was like no 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 he said and they were so good at estimation. They had this idea of um, kind of two structures. They had a team that was doing project-based work. And they had a, this concept of baseline team who were flexible. They could flex in and out to fill gaps. But where the baseline team strengths were, were actually around first and second level support. And I think this is one of the bits which just seems to disappear when it comes to um, you know modern practices you know they're happy to build and deploy but when it comes to fixing and rework that needs that's coming in from first and second line support the prioritization against new and getting something out of the door versus criticality of functionality is 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 off balance and i saw this when i was in santa clara and i was working for a software company you know there's what happens is there's a backlog of of critical issues coming from customers um, and, you know, that's part of what you were talking about with that risk profile of you saying, well, actually, you know, a number two is going to be potentially there's going to be six months of, of rework that we're going to have to now plan for. You'll still hit your date. You'll still get it out to market. But we expect first and second line to be, you know, increased over those period of times because of the time to quality metric you know making a decision to release and not postpone for three months because it's the same thing you've got three months of resourcing fixing these first second line support issues and that's where all my team disappeared to i had a team in plano and they literally spent their time you know not bringing anything new to market but fixing all the issues in production you know do you see things like that where there's there's maybe there's not that you know there's not enough planning around a post release right and I, I think i think that i've been very fortunate um in that i have worked with some really great project managers and you know the 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 dysfunction of project the dysfunctions of project management are very well known which is you know the bad ones don't really do anything except collect schedules from all the other functions and then you know throw them into microsoft projects but uh, I've often uh, worked with 
like really brilliant project managers. And um, I've never seen, uh, like I'm very good at estimation, at QA estimation. And I know what drives project managers crazy is everyone wants to avoid estimating. And I've often bonded with project managers by being the guy who like does the estimates and then takes the time to go over line by line each estimate and be sure they understand it and be flexible in changing things, you know. But um, particularly at one job, I had a, a project manager um, and we had a really good discussion about this very problem. And I said, well, we have to explain to upper management that there are two very different types of development. I said, forget the distinction between maintenance and new development. Just throw that out. Because what we're really talking about here is the distinction between commitment-based development and non-commitment-based development. And the way those projects are managed are totally different. So by commitment-based development, what I mean is you've announced to the market that you're delivering a new version with these new features and capabilities, right? So you've, you've committed to that. Or you have a very large customer where you committed in the next release, you're going to have this new feature that they desperately need, okay? Then there's maintenance, which is non-commitment-based development. I said, you, you, you do as much as you can in the maintenance release project cycle, right? You rank, you prioritize, and if stuff has to drop out, it drops out, right? And you don't stress about it. You say, we have enough resources to do, you know, 20 of the top maintenance issues. Well, maybe because of the complexity of the fixes or the cost of the fixes, you can only do 16 of them. Okay, great. You know, don't, don't get upset or stressed over it. Just move. I mean, and it's a constantly moving target and people don't want to accept that, but you know, there's commitment based development, which is very hard, fast, very date driven, very content specific, right? People want to see these things there. Maintenance, maintenance is non-commitment based. And so you have to have a totally different mindset. It has to be like a rolling thunder thing, right? Whereas I think the mistake people make is that they treat the maintenance cycle the way they would the new development cycle. And, they, and, and once again, this is a question of managing up. Once I explained to the big boss the difference between commitment-based and non-commitment-based, he totally got it. I said, you know, I mean, some of these bugs are bugs we have an obligation to fix. You know, we have a moral responsibility to our customers to fix, but there's no revenue attached to them. You know? So this is a totally different process because it's a totally different way of thinking about the work that we're doing. So I think sometimes the categories people use and the language people use are really unhelpful because they don't really get to what's different about them. So you say maintenance versus new development. People think, well, it's got to be the same process. No. But when you say non-commitment-based development versus commitment-based development, people see very quickly, you know, okay, these are two different animals by, by business definition, right? Not by technical definition because fixing is fixing and coding is coding, you know, when you get to the bottom of it. 
So, I mean, it's always going to be, it's never going to stop being a challenge, but I find that like once project management and I got on the same page, we sort of boxed engineering in by doing that, you know, and she was so grateful that I took the time to, you know, and I remember every month I would sit down with this project manager and review the QA resourcing and schedule. And I was happy to do that. And I found that, um, you know, when you, when you take other functions' roles seriously and show that you're willing to take the time to help them succeed, all kinds of things open up, you know, because everyone's kind of retreating behind their barricades. And, uh, but uh, I, I have to say, when you find a good project manager, make that person your friend, really. And be very good at estimation. Yeah, I think I think estimation is a is a lost art, and you know I I always use the Lynchburg estimation method, which is this pessimistic, optimistic, realistic, and then do standard deviation to to work out, you know, whereabouts it should should be, and that's kind of you know better at getting you getting better at estimation really helps with less drama down the line, right? Um, uh, but you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you another question. So I'm working on a, this uh, on um, leading a QA team for this um, MIT project at the moment for COVID uh, safe paths, um, and so we've just rolled out to Haiti literally yesterday. Um, so we got a whole stack of QA, and we're we're doing what would be clusters testing in production, which is a long story, but don't worry about it. But you know, that, that part of the time to market, i.e., get it out because you know it'll save lives versus is the product ready to ship you know this is actually a geo-based challenge because obviously we're rolling out the product like we'd normally do for new development but then what really is happening is new regions are coming on the u.s will probably be next and then you know other you know other countries and then eventually maybe the uk um, with contact tracing now what we're seeing is obviously it's adoption of the product, right? And there's this, you know, we've, you've probably seen the bridging the chasm book, you know, there's this kind of early adopters versus, you know, early majority and this, this massive chasm between it. And of course, you know, partly what I'm trying to do to what I've been doing today is looking at those numbers of, in Haiti of people adopting the software. And then I'm getting all the crash analytics coming through for people who's it's crashing on their phone. Right. Of course, you know, now we've got a call around obviously the volunteers anyway, but the, the development finite amount of volunteer dev resource versus the issues that are coming through, which are geo specific to Haiti as a region. And that whole feedback of what you've just kind of talked about in the sense of committed, I we're committed to roll it out to these countries in these dates versus, you know, maintenance. Well, issues what are happening and and you know i think you're completely right people throw things like oh it's a p1 in production whatever p1 should be defined as um in terminology of oh well it's a showstopper right but if there's no categorization or priority because you're getting information you don't understand what's happening in the in production i.e you've not got those metrics which is what i'm trying to do at the moment and i'm struggling but you know part of it is things like do we know people are successfully posting information to their health authority? That could be seen as a journey, which is pretty critical in this COVID situation. Whereas, you know, the ability to change your health authority once you selected it is a less of a priority. 
you know, do you think there's a priority and quality, uh, you know, gate when it comes to functionality that's operating in production and how that's categorized when it comes back in to that non-committed work? Well, I mean, that is an institutional discussion. And, you know, QA is obviously going to have an opinion on that. But, you know, I mean, the standard triage for maintenance issues is impact versus cost, right? Impact on the customer versus cost to the organization. And I think that often people just start churning, right? And they're trying to prioritize, but everyone's prioritizing things differently. And um, this is where if you have a really brilliant project manager and you partner with them, uh, because, you know, we don't have all the answers in QA, but our perspective is very valuable, right? And at some point, remember my earlier point about irreducible complexity, right? Well, that can be rephrased as irreducible mess, right? It's not going to stop being messy. It's, it's, it's never going to become this Kantian, you know, rationalist enterprise. And so managing the chaos of it is sort of what we all have to learn how to do, but in a way that is effective and rational in some way. And it's interesting that the problem that you mentioned just now with your uh, COVID app uh, reminded me of something very important for QA thinking particularly with respect to automation, because uh, you're thinking, okay, so like are people being able to send their data where it needs to go, right? That's a very complex testing problem, right? And I think that software development in general is a victim of what I call the empirical fallacy, that we can't know until we actually see it happening, right? You know, I, I read about this all the time where you know, like this whole Boeing plane crash software nightmare where it's like, well, the engineers couldn't see it actually happening in real time. And it's like, well, why do you need to see it in real time to know? I mean, do you not understand the code that you wrote? And when I was at Symantec, we had uh, one of the big problems they had in the enterprise division was that they had all these uh, kind of single purpose security products, you know, mail filtering, firewall, virus detection, and they didn't really, there was no sensor fusion behind it. And what we found out when we surveyed our major customers was that they just assumed that there was no difference in quality between those functions across all of our competitors. They assumed we all did the job about as good as everybody else did. And their main pain point was actually being able to get a dashboard that synthesized all this information across the organization so that they didn't have to correlate it and do sensor fusion and get like the big picture of the security. Now this is 20 years ago. I mean, that's a problem that's largely been solved at the time. It was like a huge issue. And so Symantec uh, came up with this project codenamed CESA, which would be that dashboard that fused data from all our different endpoint security products into one overall view of the security posture of the company. And then, of course, uh, 
my QA team was tasked with, you know, developing a plan for all of this. But we, we ran into a, an interesting political problem. We were developing this dashboard for new, for upcoming versions of each of these endpoint products because we needed new versions of each of these endpoint products that could integrate with the, so it was a huge chicken and egg problem. And of course it was politicized because the people leading the development teams of the endpoint products were like, well, we're not going to commit to support your console until it's ready and we can be sure that it works with our, and it's like, yeah, well, we can't develop our console until we have your stuff, you know, and this was just going nowhere because it was like, well, I'm not going to give you A until you give me B and I can't give you B until you give me A and that whole group group. So I sat down with my head of QA engineering, who was brilliant, by the way, I mean, just like really brilliant. And I said, you know, this is all internal semantic technology. We all own it, right? There's, there's nothing proprietary internally here. And I said, so what, we, so what we need to do is create not an automation tool, but a simulation tool. So there's no reason we can't build a tool that will perfectly simulate the output from any of these products without having the products themselves. Because we have their specs. We, we know how they're going to implement it. We don't have to wait till it's implemented. And I said, and the other thing is we need to build into this tool the ability to vary the parameters of all this simulated up. And that broke the impasse. In fact, we finished before they did. And we were able to present that to management bugs in our simulated data based on their specs, which drove them crazy, right? Because I remember one meeting where the head of one of these point product teams told upper management, yeah, but, you know, we're still working on this format and we're still developing it. And he looked at him and he goes, QA has already done that for you. You need to use their format. <laughs> so I think that the, the issue of simulation is really underthought in QA that we're kind of trapped in the empirical fallacy unless we can somehow have an environment that's on some level identical to the environment they're going to be using and sending data to. And it's like, you're not, you're never going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so you got to think in terms of simulation and, you know, it's not perfect, but it's going to give you a leg up on at least major issues. But I, I don't see any discussion of this. It's, it's all around automation. And yet if the, if the structure of the data output is known, right? And if the structure of the receiving system is known, you don't need to recreate the receiving system in a Tesla. You can virtualize it. But um, yeah, and, and once again, this is where my education comes in because I have an education in philosophy as well. And you're like, well, wait a minute. This is just stupid empiricism, right? Like we can't, I, I like to explain to people who don't work in the industry how engineers think. And I say, you know, suppose one day you win the lottery. And you have the money to build your dream house. 
and you hire an architect and a contractor and they're working on it and you visit the site one day and you say to the foreman, you say so, or to the architect and you say, so when it's done, it's going to have four bedrooms and three baths, right? And I said, imagine if the architect answered, well, we won't know until we're done. You know? And then if she said, what do you mean we won't know until we're done? I mean, you contracted to do this. And what if the architect says to you, how many houses have you built? You know, you don't know anything about this. Shut up. <laughs> Which is, if you think about it, that's how CEOs hear engineering teams a lot of the time. Uh, I think it's a, a fascinating discussion. I, I love, you know, I might have to, uh, I'm not going to uh, quote you for the, the simulation over automation concept, because I think that's, that is a really great, great idea in the sense of, you know, a lot of the challenges, uh, the Haiti one's a good example, is we, u- we use uh, model-based testing tools to generate synthetic data. And, and um, you know, I did a podcast with Hugh Price, who, did, who helps us with this. And we did something very similar before. We created a, a simulation for a smart city project in Copenhagen where we synthetically generated 5 billion historical transactions going through the city with the stamp time dates but you're right it's we knew it was gps we knew what the format was going to be we didn't have to wait to find out if it had four bedrooms we knew that and it was a case of populating the test and i think this is interesting because you know partly we talk about test data coverage in this kind of you know well we know testing coverage to a certain point and you like you pointed out with localization testing for like installers that's in theory is a is a variable so therefore you know, part of that, you know, simulator is, well, can you simulate those activities to prove that they work and, and prove that hypothesis? You're building that model to prove that, it, you know, it's working. And, you know, yes, you may not have a sandbox environment. So, you know, this concept of being able to to harmonize it, a point where you can do synthetic testing in a production right. environment which generates, and I think you've kind of nailed it in the sense of if you came up with a test API language, which would say for this particular transaction, I want you to give me a, a negative response, um, you know, right, a negative right. test case, and it turns it on. The other end accepts that it's in testing debugging mode, and it plays along with the simulator, i.e., oh, systemic failure, that message didn't get posted. I'm not going to give you a response back and the client times out. So part of it is this testing mode idea of built into the code level. So you can test those scenarios through simulation instead of always being in production mode. And the other thing is it, it descales the size of the effort because your testing is so precisely defined and targeted that, because, you know, automation is, one of the problems with automation is that it, it accepts the massive scale of the system as a given. And so automation has to be equally massive, right? Whereas with simulation, you can like descale. I mean, si- simulation is, is never going to be the entire solution, but certainly for initial testing. Uh, the other thing, uh, I'm, I'm really en- enjoying talking to you because you're helping me remember things that I forgot I knew is that when you're doing data, data testing like this, you know, heavy data transactional um, applications, 
people often focus on the properties of individual transactions, right? I need a transaction that has like a value out of range or a, you know, people don't often think about there's transaction properties and characteristics, but there's also transaction stream characteristics and properties. In other words, attributes of the whole data stream as such. And I ran into this when I was developing testing for the mail filtering product that Symantec had at the time. And we had a, a good set of individual examples like, you know, mail with attachments, mail with encrypted attachments, right? You know, mail, but, and then I realized I was talking to the engineers and I said, right, but we need to have data stream profiles, not just individual mail profiles. And so how does the product behave if 70% if of the mail stream is infected? If 70% of the mail stream is encrypted and infected. And that's where we found all the bugs. <laughs> it was like, because, because I was thinking our products are meant to deal with a virus outbreak, okay? Which is just like our current pandemic, right? It comes in a surge. So you're going to go from zero to 100 in maybe 10 minutes, right? So we need to test that scenario because that's the scenario where our product is supposedly designed to handle. Not like one email that's infected with an encrypted attachment. What if 70% of your mail stream, which is, you know, 10 gigabytes of data, is suddenly having to be filtered by our mail filter? And that's where it just fell over and died. And that, that's interesting because it's kind of a bit like a DDoS attack, really. Is You know, I always, you know, found fascinating when you go down to the network level is, you know, just that SMTP traffic is going to be a lot. If you think about the processing time from your, your, your mail filtering application, if it's getting a hit, the types of data and the size of those data and the frequency of that data is all really important as attributes of what the simulator could potentially do. And, you know, I, I'm kind of trying to kind of link this back to your original starting statement in the sense of, you know, you're tying quite a lot of things like systems thinking into your thought process in the sense of what does the entire system work as organically as, as it grows and becomes a downstream product that connects to an upstream product. Right, right. Where is that contract going from all the way from here to here? What's the streams of multiple different transforms, ETLs, whatever's going on through there at what frequency, you know, how does that whole hang together? Not just targeting a single entity is actually targeting the ecosystem. Right. right. I mean, I, I have devoted a lot of my time um, as a leader in QA training my staff. Um, and one of the things that I would teach them is that there's irreducible complexity here. But the way we think about it doesn't have to be irreducibly complex. And so in terms of your example of systems thinking, what I would do is just draw a diagram on the whiteboard that just had you know, a rectangle for the system, right? 
And then outside of it to the left, I'd have a box that said inputs. Inside the system box, I'd write transformations. And then a rectangle to the right that said output. I said any system follows this diagram. There might be 5,000 variations of input, 5,000 different transformations, 5,000 variants of output, but ultimately, at a high level, you have to think about any system as what are all of its inputs, and also what are its methods of input, right? Like, how does the input get into the system? What happens to it in the system? And how does it get out of the system and in what format? You know? I mean... And that's a very simplistic way of thinking about it, but it's also very powerful because I think that you have to come up with these heuristic devices to simplify how people approach complex problems without simplifying the complexity of the problem. And I think that a lot of uh, materials I've seen training people to think about these things, they just go directly into the complexity. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not giving their, their audience the heuristic tools to sort of create a structure of thinking that helps them understand the complexity. No, I, I agree with that. I think it's, uh, you know, that kind of, how do you apply, what heuristics do you apply to a particular given problem? You know, is that knowledge which you've kind of accumulated since I think it was 87 or when you started, you know, right. as you go through, you've got more heuristics, which you understand. And you've also got more blueprints to where you've seen something similar work or not work. Is that, right. does that feel like it's a true statement? Yes, it's very much a true statement because it's, it's always this interplay between your theoretical understanding and your experience on the ground. Because another thing that's not really talked about um, is like the big challenge for me in my career was not really thinking through this stuff in the way that we've discussed. But how do I make it happen on the ground? How do I institutionalize and socialize this, not just in my department, but in the organization as a whole? And that's a black art. I mean, that's a real, um, you know, because you can have the best ideas and understanding in the world, but if you can't make it happen on the ground every day, consistently, it's never going to be adopted. And which is why Often in my career, when I've inherited a legacy group, often filled with amazing people, but they have no training, they, they're institutionally powerless. And, um, I have devoted probably 50% of my time training and coaching, which I think a lot of managers come in with all these brilliant ideas, but they don't want to make that time investment. And, um, and, and I've always been willing to do that, and I've never been disappointed in the results. But, I mean, it's really like, you know, you can read all the books on child rearing in the world, 
but at some point you're rearing your kids like today in your home, <laughs> right? Mm. And so you've got to figure out how all of this applies. And, uh, and I think that's why, you know, I had this really brilliant QA engineer at Symantec who could easily have just gone and been an engineer, right? That's the catch-22 of QA engineering. When they're really good, they don't stick around. But he stuck around because he was learning things. Because I asked him, I said, why, why haven't you just like taken a job in engineering? He says, oh, because I already know how to do that. I don't know how to do this. So, you know, there's, there's the practical stuff of like, how do you actually institutionalize this and make it happen? Because if people don't see it happening, you know, you're not going to have any credibility, right? Mm. And I think, you know, two words which I kind of summarize from, from that statement as well is, is trust and transparency. Very much yes. like this, this Haiti thing is that actually without trust, you know, it, the project will fail. And I think it's the same thing for what, how you've been able to be, succeed is you, with that 50% investment, you're providing trust and giving transparency at the same time to engineer uh, managing up and managing your team so people trust your decisions which help them lead by example and and i think that's the characteristic that maybe people that trust is sometimes broken down because of the stuff you were talking about before things as you know like agile methodologies where someone just will walk up to somebody and report the issue with them you know your your um, your baby's ugly kind of approach you know that right. isn't you know building trust and transparency you know that isn't collaborating and and taking and proving that you, you know you can add value to that um, activity that is you know potentially i know that i'm trying to avoid the word being diplomatic because i don't think you know people have to be diplomatic i think it's more about that that honesty and trust and transparency that actually builds confidence in your leadership. And I think that's, you know, a key success, you know, of, of, from what I'm hearing. No, w without question. And I think that um, when you have that, um, I, uh, uh, you know, everything becomes much easier. Everything becomes much more transparent. And everyone, I mean, there's this... Uh, I was raised in a, in a church, and I remember the, one of the pastor's favorite phrases was, there's no freedom without law. Now, he meant something by that that I don't necessarily agree with, but I sort of rephrased that as, there's no freedom without structure. And so I've always seen my role as a QA lead as, I have two goals. I have to put a structure in place that everyone understands, that's uniform, and most of the time is unvarying. Okay? That's in terms of role definition, how we do our work, what we're being held accountable for, how I'm going to judge you. And I find that if that's in place and internalized, I can give my people perfect freedom. Because it takes such a burden off people. And I remember one day one of my QA leads came to me and he goes, you know, Niall, I've never had the experience at work that I'm having now. And I said, uh-oh, <laughs> what does that mean? 
He said, no. He said, I've never had the experience where, on the one hand, everything is very well defined. Everything is out there. We all know how we're going to do our work and how everything's going to happen. And yet he goes, I've never felt so free to do my work the way I want to do it. I said, well, that's cause and effect, right? I mean, you know, because we all know managers who the only way they know how to manage a team is to like walk around every day and quiz people to what they're doing. And I think that's what he was talking about, that I didn't do that. I wasn't coming to him and going, so what are you working on? Because I, I already knew, <laughs> right? And he already knew that I knew. So, you know, and, and in fact, one of the things that I do, which is kind of shocking at first, is, uh, you know, when I have my first staff meeting with my leads, is I say, okay, so let's, let's come to a common understanding of the purpose of this meeting. So the purpose of a status meeting is not to find out status. It's to discuss what we're going to do about status we already know. So that's another thing that I put in place is what I call passive status reporting mechanisms, where the information I need just flows to me. You know, I click on a link, I go to a web page, I go to a tool, and everything I need to know about status is there, and everything they need to know about status is there. So we don't spend the status meeting filling each other in on what we're doing. We already know. So let's just talk about, based on what we already all know, what are we going to do? So my staff meetings were never more than 20 minutes long. And they loved that. They just thought that was like, like wow. I mean, they hated it at first because I was putting a burden on them to know exactly what was going on. Right? It's this kind of freedom in QA, which I, I, we haven't thought of a, a podcast title, but, you know, part of, you know, that there's no surprises because, you know, a lot of status kind of meetings, which I've been to, you know, part of it is people talking through what's already on the screen right it, you know it's this kind of powerpoint view of you know here's what we did and here's this information which like you said you already know because you've you know where to get that you can self-serve it you know there is no surprise because you're already understanding where everybody is it's a case of using that time to actually achieve something which you want to work to collectively together to do um and that's a really interesting one because, you know, I remember Ray, who's in Portland as well, and he, he always has this thing about meetings where he literally says, you know, I won't attend a meeting without an agenda. And, you know, when it, he means that, he means it's got some structure within it in the sense of what are the decisions we are going to make and out of the, out of the back of that in this kind of, you know, we, there must be a purpose for us coming together and, and working together. And, you know, this idea of, you know, giving people the freedom that they're able to, um, you know, not have to worry about, well, you know, how should I be, you know, um, giving this, inf communicating this information, that's all taken care of. They're able to get on with their job and not have to worry about right. the, the semantics. Right. And, and I found that Developing passive status reporting mechanisms solves a lot of political problems as well because that becomes a resource for people outside of my department as well. 
So one of the things I just hate, yeah, not to be crude, but when I'm you know, in the men's room taking a leak and you know the head of another group is standing next to me saying, so, you know, what's going on with X? I'm like, I'm taking a leak here. Would you just stop? And what I did at Symantec and other places I've worked is I've created passive status reporting mechanisms that are open to everybody. So if the head of project management wants to know, you know, where QA is on this project, they click on a link, right? They, they go to this QA status page for that project and everything they need to know is like real time, like every day, any day, right? And um, when I showed this to upper management, they just like fell in love with it. Because one of them said, you mean I don't have to hunt you down? And I was thinking in the men's room and, uh, you know, ask me what's going on. I said, you can just, it's all here now. If you have questions about this, by all means, come to me, you know, but you shouldn't have to find me to know what the heck is going on, you know? And, um, and I found that that solved a lot of, and, and, and it's funny, there were people, uh, functional heads of other groups who really hated that because it put the responsibility on them to know what was going on, right? They, they couldn't say, well, you know, Niall hasn't told me, you know, I, I can never find him. I can never get a meeting with him. It's like, well, you don't need, you don't need a meeting. I mean, maybe you do, but over something that only I can answer, right? Because if, if, if I'm the only one who knows what's going on, then I'm failing, mm. right? But, um, you know, I said, look, here's, everything, is, everything in my group is transparent. There's no black box here. There's no, you want to know who's working on what bug, or, you know, where we are in test coverage or where we are in time quality. It's, here it is. It's, it's all here. Just, and this was 20 years ago when this stuff was not worn at all. And, uh, uh, but you know, people actually learned to, to love it. You know, because one thing I would tell my people when I would take over a group, because the other thing I think is very important is to be very open with your people about how you want them to communicate with you. That, that shouldn't be a minefield. You know, that shouldn't be something they are surprised by. And I'd always tell them, look, I said, I have a pet peeve. There's one thing I cannot stand. And it may be irrational, but you need to learn it. So do not stop me in the hallway with a question. Just don't do it. If I'm walking down the hallway, I'm going somewhere else. So you want to talk to me? My door is always open. You just knock on it, walk in, and ask me whatever you want. But do not stop me in the hallway. Because to me, that's like random. No. It's, it's kind of unstructured as well, isn't it? In the sense of, did you need to just bump into each other to trigger that activity to happen? Right. With this kind of self-serve QA, is that actually the information's there, right? And, you know, what you were talking about before about not having a good quality product manager, they're sometimes just a proxy. They just pass information on, you know, oh, did you realize QA are here? And did you realize we got these kind of issues? They're just passing information. and They're not adding anything to enrich that information. Correct, correct. Right, and, and of course, I mean, you know, I, I, I really 
try to train my people that what we're doing is structured. And snagging me in the hallway when I'm going somewhere else is, it's so random, how could it be important for me? Right? And at first, some people get put out by that, but then they learn that actually you can knock on my door and you can come in and talk to me and we'll have a very productive discussion. But they have to make that decision, right? If you're going to obligate me, that has to be a decision you're making. Right? And, and, and I feel the same way about, you know, when I put my processes in place, heads of other functions often feel they're losing freedom in relation to QA. Because they can't get away with stuff they used to be able to get away with before like having QA people do their job, you know. And, uh, and I explained to one of them once who was kind of cross with me, and I said, look, I said, if there are no rules in place, I cannot know when I'm making an exception to them. And I said, if I say you can't do this in relation to QA, doesn't mean it can't happen means I have to make a conscious decision to make an exception for you. Which, depending on the circumstances, I'll be happy to do. But we'll both know it's an exception. Right? Yeah, I think that's really hard for some organizations. I remember being in a large organization which had strategic processes and then tactical processes, which were kind of, you know, if they didn't fit in with the process that they had in place, they would make an exception on that one case. But then what happened was there was way too many tactical solutions and not very many strategic uh, um, solutions. And, you know, I think that might be a key reason of why, you know, things, you know, this autonomous kind of teams that can work in isolation and make their own decisions, you know, that's great if there is, the vision's there and there's this tra- level of transparency and guidance which, and support which they get to, to, so that they can make those decisions. But if that's not there, and, you know, in a lot of smaller teams, that structure isn't there and therefore, you know, a lot of the exceptions happen all the time on, you know, from small things to large things and they just, you know, everything becomes tactical and nothing is... Right. And I think that, um, you know, defining a rule or a way of doing things is not necessarily a restriction. Because the other part of, this goes back to my structure of freedom dialectic, is that when I have rules in place that everyone understands, that gives me the freedom to just grant favors pretty much all the time. You know, because I've, I've always been amazed at people who are in leadership roles and they need, a colleague needs their help to do something that will take them 10 minutes and they won't do it. You know, not my table. Whereas for me, it's always like, happy to do it. It's, it's 10 minutes. I'll never be so busy that I can't take 10 minutes out to help a colleague. But then, but then they know, they know. I'm doing them a favor, but I'm happy to do. I mean, I'm happy to do it because it creates no anxiety in me 
that I'm creating an expectation that I can't fulfill because one of the situations I've encountered over and over again when I've inherited a legacy QA team that did not have strong leadership, heads of other functions were constantly raiding the QA resources to do special little things that they needed done that really didn't have a lot to do with what QA was supposed to be working on. And one of the really difficult things I've gone through many times is explaining to these people, you, you can't appropriate my resources without my approval. You, you can't go run to Bob over here to do this thing for you that they've always done for you. So it doesn't mean it can't happen, but it means you have to come to me. Simple as that. And then I have to explain this to my team, which makes them very uncomfortable because they don't want to piss off some powerful person. And I would just say, look, just tell them, talk to nine. Just come talk to Niall, and it's like, trust me, 90% of the time, if I can make it happen, I will make it happen. But then people learn that. They see, okay, Niall's got his rules, and he's got his processes, but he's happy to help. And in fact, at, uh, when I worked, uh, you ever hear of stamps.com? Mm. I, I worked for them for a couple of years, and my QA team actually had T-shirts made that said, just talk to Niall. You know, but you're kind of training people, and it gets back to role definition. You know, it, we're not all doing everything all at once. You know, there are things that there are responsibilities I have that I cannot delegate, that my resources cannot interrupt, and let you appropriate their labor. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen that way. It can happen another way, and then they see actually Niall's one of the more accommodating. <laughs> functional leads that we have here, but you, but you know, we all have to understand what structure is that we're all working in. And, and I find that's why a lot of process improvement fails because that higher level question of role definition and structure isn't really addressed. Oh, it's, it's, I've really enjoyed chatting and it's, um, we could literally go on for a, a couple more hours. No, it's been almost two hours. So. Which is good, which is, there's some fantastic material in here. It's going to be a, an amazing episode. Um, but I want to make sure I add some stuff on for you, you know, to, for people to get in touch and reach out to you. And you mentioned about some of the articles that you've written, you know, which I will check out some of them. I, I did spot a couple, but, you know, what would you say to people who are listening as, you know, you know, being your biggest, um, you know, inspirations and also kind of what, you know, what, what's a good, good, good way to interact with you and speak to you or if they've got questions? Well, I mean, you can certainly share my email. Um, and I, you know, one of the things, cause I got into QA when it was kind of feral, you know, it's very undisciplined, very untrained. And, and I came in untrained in QA. And this is like 1987, right? So I've been doing this for almost 35 years. And so I have a lot of the compassion for QA people because I, I know how hard it can be. And so I feel, uh, particularly now that I'm mature in my career, that I'm happy to help people. I'm just really happy to help people think things through, and I do not have all the answers, right? No way. But I think that uh, QA people often do not have mentors. 
I think that's changing, but often they're just kind of thrown into the crap and have to figure it all out. And I, I know all about that. But also I think that there is very little thought leadership in QA in the sense of what is QA all about? As opposed to this process or that tool, but okay, but if you don't like the, the understanding that we've been discussing, what, what is QA really? You know, what what does it what is it uniquely responsible for, and how should it actually think about itself? Which is not a question that I see being discussed at all. It's all very uh, instrumentalized. Like, how do I become better at X? You know, how do I optimize my scripts, right? How do I make Scrum work for me? But these higher level issues are, and the thing is, I'm just not, I'm not just talking out of my ass here. I mean, I actually have done this. I mean, I've actually lived through all of this. I don't just have like this good idea or that good idea. So I think I'm, I'm happy to be a resource for people. Um, but uh, I have, I think, seven articles on QA in my LinkedIn, which you might enjoy reading, because that goes into a lot more detail about things. But I'm, I'm really happy to be a mentor and a coach for QA people. It's, it's not a problem for me at all. Well, I'm personally going to read those seven. I think we might have to have another podcast after and talk about some of those, you know, those points, if you're okay doing that, because it'd be really good. Um, and, you know, we've, you know, I'm doing on Wednesday for the British Computer Society, we're, we're doing a, a webinar, but we're trying to do uh, find people mentors um, for uh, within, within the British Computer Society. So I definitely will mention um, you as well, because we're, we're, we're part of the specialist interest group for software testing. And I think, like you said, you know, there's a lot of, Here's how you can use the tools. Here's how you can you create the you know create your own processes. But no one's really taking that time to address what is quality and you know and how do we actually make it a, you know make it a success. And I, I love the idea. Everything you've talked about tonight, I've really enjoyed because you know part of bringing that clarity into there and, and trust and that transparency and that you know that the fact that your staff can feel they've got the freedom to, you know, not have any of the stress and burden because, you know, part of it is you're taking away some of that, that responsibility from them and leading the team into be, becoming a success and, and being able to scale this model, you know, not just focus on maybe the wrong reasons and maybe, you know, that experience is something that the community needs you to share. So, you know, I think. And, and I think what's so important about understanding kind of the essence of QA is that, that that's actually not a process understanding. And so if you have clear, if you've internalized the fundamental principles we've been discussing, you can decide how to apply them in any way that is necessary. Right, because people always ask me, "Yeah, well, how would this work in a small organization? How would this work in a large organization?" And it's like that's an irrelevant question because QA is what it is. I mean, you know, the purpose of QA doesn't change whether you're in a startup or Symantec. The way you prioritize that understanding may change. The way you institutionalize it may 
change, right? But it gives people, because I find a lot of QA theory is very doctrinaire. It's very tied to a specific specific assumptions around the type of organization you're in or the product that you're making. And it's like, right, but I mean, no one says that the definition of engineering is different in a startup versus a big company. No one says that, mm. right? But people do think that about QA. They think, well, I, I don't see how, this sounds like it's a really heavy duty. And it's like, no, what we're talking about here is fundamental understandings of what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. How that happens on the ground is going to be different. But once again, if you have the structure, you have the freedom. I think, that, I think that is the freedom, though, isn't it? That is the freedom is the understanding, which I don't think is there. I think that is, you know, the key to unlocking all this is that the, the discussions that don't happen and people are afraid to have about quality just it's because they don't feel they can support that conversation with facts and evidence. And I think, you know, there's also this split within the, the QA and testing industry that you have to be in one camp or the other. You're either in your context driven or you're in another, you know, thinking group. And, you know, there's not a, because there's no one really talking about, what it actually means, what quality actually means, you know, right. I think that's and, where the, they lose their messaging just lost. Right. And, and often when I've explained to people that the problem of QA is not quality, it's knowledge. I think people feel a sense of vertigo when they hear that because they don't know how to operationalize that understanding. And, and that's something I've figured out. I mean, painfully over many years, but, but, and so I'm able to say, you know, I'm not asking you to step into the abyss here. You know, I'm not asking you to abandon everything you already know, but this is just a different way, a different perspective of understanding what you're already doing, which will help you understand other things you might need to start doing, right? But, but, but people do feel like, intellectual vertigo when I say this because they're like, well, I, you know, I don't know how to do that. And it's like, well, I do. Mm. I had to figure it out and it was not easy, but you know, learn, learn from my pain. Right. So, well, I want to thank you for reaching out to me and giving me this opportunity. It's been a lot more fun than I thought. <laughs> And I, I, I loved, yeah, I loved, just loved it. Uh, it was absolutely great fun. And I'm going to read your articles, especially as I've got some a bit of time. And I'm going to, we'll have to put something else in the diary to to go through some of the some of your other thinking. Sure, and we are connected on LinkedIn, I believe, right? We are indeed. Yep, we are. Connected. Okay, good. So, so you'll so you'll have no trouble seeing myself. And anyway, you certainly can feel free to reach out to me directly, um, and anytime you feel you need to. And I'm, I'm really happy that you're doing this. I think you're doing a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, take care of yourself, man, okay? You too. And until next time, um, and let's keep in touch on, on LinkedIn. Okay, and you have my email, right? I do, I do. I, I've, I've got it in my, in my uh, diary yeah. at the moment. Right. I'm very, I'm very responsive to email, so feel free. Okay, take care of yourself, man. 
it's been lovely chatting to you and yeah take it easy man and stay safe yeah well I have no choice so anyway <laughs> you're doing care. the right thing All right take it easy man bye yeah.